The scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 22. I'll be reading from verses 14 to 34. Please read with me this passage on which today's gospel lesson uh, is based. When the hour came, Jesus and his, and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is, is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked you to sift you, has asked to sift you as we, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. And this is God's word. You know, throughout Lent, we've been looking at passages in the gospel according to Luke. And today, we're looking into that night right before Jesus dies. Now, if you think about this, if you knew tomorrow that you were going to die, everything that you do today would be important. It would be critical. Who you meet with, what you do, what you say. So if you're a Christian, or if you're considering what it means to be a Christian, you need to listen to this, because this is for you. It's for both. What does it teach? In Jesus, we have three things. One, we have a new priority. Two, we have a radical new community. And thirdly, we have a new motivational center. New priority, new community, new center. First, we're going to look at the gospel affording us a new priority, giving us a new priority. Verse 14, Jesus had gathered the disciples actually in an upper room. We see this in the pretext leading up to this verse. They gather for the Passover. And verse 15, Jesus says, I've eagerly desired to eat the Passover meal with you before I suffer. In other words... Jesus waited until this night to explain to his disciples why he came and to explain to his disciples why he'll die. Why? 
You see, in the book of Exodus, the Passover meal was eaten the night before the Israelites were rescued from slavery out of Egypt by God, by God's own hand. The night before, the Israelites were told to gather in their homes and eat this particular meal. And ever since then, they did this every year. Every year, the head of the home would get up. He would take a cup of wine and institute this time. He would give thanks. Uh, and he would open up this, uh, this time with an explanation of the meaning of the Passover. And then he would take bread. He would give thanks. He would break the bread. And he would distribute it to his family. It was a way of remembering how God saw them in slavery, and how God remembered them and saw them and provided for them while they were in the desert, while they were in the wilderness with nothing to eat. He was their faithful provider. He was their faithful rescuer. So what Jesus does in verse 17, Jesus is the head. He takes the cup and he gives thanks. He's instituting. Verse 19, he takes the bread. He gives thanks. He breaks the bread. He gives it to his disciples. Verse 20, he takes the cup. He explains the cup. Ah, but this time, this time, he changes the script. He completely changes the script. And he says two remarkable things. What does he say? One, verse 18, he says, I will not drink this again. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm wholly committed to being with you. I'm going to wait and I'm committed to you. Because think about it. When you say, I will not eat, I will not drink until something, what you're saying is that something is the greatest priority of your life. There's nothing more important in a day than eating or drinking, right? You need that to to have life. Jesus is saying, there's actually something more important than that for me. My greatest priority, nothing is more important than bringing you home to be with me. That's what he's saying. I will not eat, I will not drink until that day. The second most remarkable thing here is verse 19. He says, this is my body given for you. Verse 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. In other words, in order for you to be fed, the bread needs to be broken. And in the same way, my body must be broken for you to be fed spiritually, to have new life. In order for you to have new life, blood, my blood, needs to be poured out for you. In other words, one, before this meal was about looking back, looking to a time in the past, looking back to a time of the suffering of Israel, looking at a time when they were slaves in Egypt. But Jesus says, this meal actually points to me. It points to my suffering. It points to uh, my arrest. It points to my death, my slavery. The second thing we see here is before you took in the meal itself, now he's saying, I need you to take me in. I need you to take in my body. I need you to take in my blood. I need you to take in my life. I need you to be in union with me. Before you relied on the blood of the lamb, today you will rely on on my blood. Before you look to Moses, who, who represented rescue, today you will look to me as your rescue. I am the ultimate exodus. Jesus is constantly, throughout this meal, pointing to himself as the centerpiece of the Passover, 
the centerpiece of the Bible, the centerpiece of history, the centerpiece of our lives. And he's saying, I need you to take me in. If you want life, if you want to mature, if you want to be nourished in life, make me your center, make me your priority. I am all you need. I'm the only way that you can be rescued from your sins. I have to be your priority. It is my priority to bring you home. I need to be your priority. Secondly, the gospel affords us or births us into then a radical new community. Now, this passage is very interesting. The first part of this passage, Jesus, now Jesus is a king. He essentially sums up his entire mission and he says, I have to die for you. The king says, I have to die for you. I have to sacrifice for you. It's an incredible feast. There's an incredible teaching here. But that, that teaching, this beautiful story, this beautiful kind of, kind of wrapping up an entire history of the, the Jews and their plight, he wraps it all up. It gets juxtaposed by the same group of disciples that he's trying to teach who are now starting to argue about who's going to be the greatest. And verse 25, Jesus responds, and he says this kind of, uh, uh, you have to look at it a little bit. I had to look at it for a while. Jesus responds, he says, the kings of the Gentiles, these are people who don't know God, right? In other words, uh, the people who don't know God, they're like this. But verse 26, you're, you're not like that. The kings of the Gentiles, people who don't know God, they live this way. But you, you are not like that. You are not to be like that. In other words, being a Christian is a very deep personal experience, so deep, so personal, that it births you into a very distinct world, a new and radical community where people act counterintuitively to the world. And until you come to know that, until that becomes a part of you, you don't really get what it means to be a Christian. Now, let's start with this. The Passover was observed in a context of what? It was observed in the context of a family. There was an evening meal, and although it was a simple meal, right? You had bread, you had wine, you had lamb, right? Although it was a simple meal, there were no refrigerators, there was no electricity, there were no stoves, and so everything took care, everything took time. And so when you observed this meal, you observed it with those who were close to, closest to you, with those who were most intimate with you. In other words, it was your family. What does that mean? Jesus is saying what? I didn't die for you to form this country club, a new, a new club. I died to create a radical, new, intimate family. What's the difference between a country club and a family? A country club is made up of people with similar interests, similar makeup, maybe even similar backgrounds. And you got to work really hard. you got to kind of earn your place to get in to a country club. But when you're in, there's this sense of status. There's a sense of, of belonging. There's a sense of, um, of, uh, of being a part of something that you've earned. And it's a societal thing, right? Where people, I mean, in truth, the truth is a lot of people in the church think that's what the church is about. That you come in, you kind of earn your keep, you earn your way into leadership, you earn your way into membership, you earn your way into serving different things. And as you serve, you kind of build up your reputation, build up your status, right? People with the same theology, maybe the same socioeconomic class, maybe the same race. 
But Jesus says, that's not what this is about. Right? If you look at the disciples, many of them might have started in one socioeconomic class, but they all dispersed later on after Jesus resurrected from the dead and after he ascended. They sent and they all ended up in different parts of the world. And they definitely didn't come from the same backgrounds. So that alone is almost a snapshot, a framework by which we can view the church and how it would grow. Jesus came to make us an intimate family. Family, a family that's going to be more important than birthright and blood ties. Because it's about a shared experience. You say, these people, they're like family. What does that mean? It's about shared experiences that have shaped you in such a compelling way that it creates this bond between you and that person. And Jesus is saying, that personal relationship with Jesus can shape that bond more than any other experience that you have in life. How? Before, you built your life around your desires. You know, you're looking for intimacy. You're looking to build wealth. You're looking to build uh, or build your reputation, have gain approval. Then what are you going to do? You're going to build your life around a pattern of those desires. So you're going to find people who can really serve that sense of intimacy. You're going to find people who are going to serve you growing up in wealth because people who want to grow up in wealth are going to kind of find each other and grow up together. You're certainly not going to go outside. There are these guardrails that you've set up for yourself. You're going to shape, it's going to shape how you dress. It's going to shape how you talk. It's going to shape what you study. It's going to shape how you connect with people, how you relate with others. But when you become a Christian, you're going to build your life around a pattern of what? Jesus' life. Jesus' death. His view of intimacy. His view of what it means to be wealthy. His view of what it means to have uh, approval. His view of greatness. In a way that's going to set you free from those desires. Before, you only hung out with certain types of people, people who are like you, people who have your desires, because you want to push each other, maybe even compete against each other, which is why there's a lot of jealousy, right? It's a way of fulfilling your desires. In other words, you used the church before, even in the church, it's like this. You used the church before like a country club. But if the gospel goes deeper, if you've taken the gospel in, People of different races, different incomes, different status can actually be closer to you than someone you grew up with. They can be closer to you than family. They become a new family. It becomes more special. It becomes very special. Why? Because now you're born into, you yourself are born in, you didn't earn your way in. It was actually, you received that entry. You received access. There's nothing that separates another person. No one is more deserving than another person. If you actually walk into the church brought in by the grace of Jesus Christ alone, we all have one commonality. We are all sinners deserving death. We recognize that, we acknowledge that. It doesn't matter how much you've been in the church, how well you served, how long you served, where you've gone, where you've studied. The common denominator, and it's a high bar of holiness, we've all failed. And so now, it becomes very possible for you to be attracted to people that Jesus was attracted to, because Jesus was attracted to you. Jesus is committed to you. You can become committed to other people. 
It builds a radical, totally new community, a deeper community, because it's not based on shallow pursuits, your shallow desires. Jesus describes the way the world works in verses 25 to 26. That's that confusing verse right there. He says the kings of the Gentiles, they're they're basically lords over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. What does that mean? Jesus is referring to an ancient culture and its tradition. There are many traditions in the ancient culture, right? One of those traditions are uh, primogeniture. In other words, the older always trumped the younger. He kind of alludes to that here. But there was another tradition called patronage, right? The ancient culture, the Greeks, the Romans, they lived in a patronage society, which is a way of saying that the people at the top used the people at the bottom to get services. They exercised lordship over them, and they were called their benefactors. They were called their patrons, and the people at the bottom, in turn, used the people at the top to get ahead, to advance. Not too different from what we have today, right? I mean, that's you at work. That's me at work. Right? That's even us many, in many ways in our families. Right? We work hard to get ahead. We will be willing to step over other people to get ahead. We could be driven by our desires to get ahead. We will use people who are going to almost like token pieces moving around to get ahead. That's what we're going to do. It's a benefactor-based society, a cost-benefit society. And so you're only going to hang out with people. You're only going to love people. You're only going to serve people who benefit you. And you're going to call that service. You're going to call that servant leadership. You're going to call that love. It's why, but we're still attracted to power, and we're still attracted to intelligence, and we're still attracted to wealth and status, reputations, and beauty. You're just using in the church at least, we're using Christian language to appeal to something, you know, to kind of slide under the radar to give us a sense of worth. Jesus says, you are not to be like that. A real Christian, somebody who is in union with me, somebody who's taken in the bread, someone who's taken in the, the, the wine, that is Jesus. You are not to be like that because a Christian is part of a radical new community. A new community, no longer attracted to people based on how you can benefit from them. If anything, you're attracted to people on how you can serve them. There is genuine love. You know that there is genuine love. Friends, this is very important because in many ways it's going to define the way Metro will be uh, in every stage of our lives. It's why our community groups are designed to be effective and to be intimate, and yet not to be comfortable. It's why worship is, not, is in, in important and necessary, but will never be sufficient in the building up of the body. That means that Metro is not just, be, it's not just called to be a warm community. It's about being unbiased in that warmth, in a way that you demonstrate love in your community because you're free from using one another to get ahead. Verses 24 to 34, the disciples, they're arguing over who's the greatest. And Jesus says, you're all kings. You're all kings. He says, you're all going to sit on thrones. You're all called, though, to rule with justice, unbiased. Then he turns to Simon Peter. And remember, Simon Peter, he's been arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And he turns to Simon 
And he uses the double. He says, Simon, Simon. Whenever you see that uh, in scripture, uh, there is a sense of emotional content, right? So he's, Jesus is almost breaking up in tears. He says, Simon, Simon, you're going to fail me. Remember, they're arguing. Who's going to be the greatest? I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. Simon, Simon, you're going to fail me. Not once, not twice, three times. Wow, that's a superlative. That means you can't fail someone worse than three times in the Bible. Simon, you claim to be godly, godlier than everyone else. You claim to be great, greater than everyone else. You make bold claims. You claim to be with me above everyone else. But tonight, everyone will see who you really are. Tonight, everyone's going to see how weak and cowardly and selfish you are. They're going to see you on the inside. What really motivates you? What really gets you? What really drives you? Peter says, no way. He says, no way. I'm ready to die with you. Jesus says, you're just like the world. And the world will see tonight. Simon, Satan is working to get you, but I'm praying for you. I'm advocating for you. I will not give up on you. And when you turn back, he doesn't say if. He says, when you turn back, then you will strengthen other people. Go and strengthen other people. In other words, once you mess up, once you royally screw up, but then you will turn to look to God's grace and not your strength and your abilities. Then you will get your priorities straight. Then you will know what's really important to me. Then you will lead. Then you will become great. Then you will get what it means to be a part of this radical new community that you are commissioned to go and help build. Because then you will know how weak and cowardly and frail we all are. You will have a heart for those failures. You will have a heart for the weak. You will have a heart for the poor. You will have a heart for the marginalized. You will have a heart, a compassion for those people, and you will love them the way I love you, and I have not given up on you. Wow. How can we have... How can we be born into that kind of community? In order for us to be born into that kind of community, Jesus Christ has to become then our motivational center. We all have a motivational center. Scripture uses different types of words, right? Uh, from a negative front, Scripture will say those motivational centers in our lives are our lusts, our over-desires, our deep-rooted sin. Our idols. How can Jesus displace those idols and become our motivational center? That's the third point. Now think about the best meal or the best meal that you've ever had. Some of you have best meals every week. You start with bread. You definitely have some wine. There's some drink. But there's always got to be a centerpiece. There's got to be a main course. For these disciples, in the Passover meal, it was supposed to be the lamb. Because the night before the Passover, in the book of Exodus, in history, God promised to send an angel of judgment. An angel was to come into Egypt, 
and the sword of his judgment is going to fall. This is going to be the angel, the angel of justice, the angel of judgment. The sword of judgment is going to fall on all people. Now, keep in mind, when God spoke to Moses and promised that this would happen, he didn't say, I'm going to kill all the bad people. He didn't say, I'm going to call all the irreligious people. He didn't say, I'm going to kill all the people who don't know me. He didn't say, I'm going to kill all the sinners. That's not what he said. He said, but he didn't say, oh, but I like you, Moses, and all your friends are my friends. You guys are good. You guys are moral. You guys are obedient. He didn't say that. Why? Why didn't he say that? Instead, he says, I want every family, my people, the people who know me, the people who trust me, every, those families among you will kill a lamb and smear the blood of that lamb on your doorposts so that as the angel passes over, the blood on those doorposts will indicate for him the lamb that was slain and is covered over and given you shelter. What does that mean? One, it means that God certainly didn't send an angel, the angel, just to kill bad people. He came to kill all people. Two, God, by saying, I'm going to send judgment on all people, he's saying everybody deserves judgment unless God makes a provision. You got to get what he's saying here. Of all the things that would save God's people, think about this. Through history, of all the things that can save God's people, it's not being Jewish. It's not how much of the Torah you memorize. It's not how much of the, for us, it's not how much of the Bible and scripture you've memorized. It's not how good you are or how much you've obeyed. It's not how much you've sacrificed. It's not about how much you've lived in according to God's word or studied God's word or read God's word. It's not how much theology you have attained and are consistently living in. But if you're not at home tonight, sheltered under the blood of the slain lamb, you will die. If you're Jewish, you observe that Passover every year to remember that time. You were instituted to do that. And you would notice if even the slightest instruction was modified because you did the same thing every year. The same process, the same meal, and the same way that the meal was served and distributed every year. You would notice if even the slightest thing had changed because nothing is supposed to change. But in this passage, where is the centerpiece. There is no lamb. We see the bread. We get the wine. Where is the lamb? There is no centerpiece. And that's what the disciples would have said. Jesus, why would you leave out the lamb? And the answer is because Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is saying, there is no lamb here because the lamb is here. I am the centerpiece. Yes, rescuing the Jews, the Israelites from Egypt was great, but it was only a signpost. It was only a marker. I am, out to, I am about to deliver my people from the ultimate bondage, the ultimate slavery, from sin and from death and from evil. Those lambs were necessary because they were provisional 
until you could be saved by grace through my sacrifice, the sacrifice of my body and my blood. John the Baptist in John chapter 1 is oftentimes overlooked as in, the, in, the, in the word of God. But John the Baptist, when he first encounters Jesus, for the first time he sees Jesus, he says what? Yo, it's Jesus. That's not what he says, right? What he says is, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Now, inevitably, some of you are struggling with this, especially if you're new to the church. You're struggling with this because you're thinking, why does any blood have to be shed at all? I mean, God is with it, right? He's in the modern times, is he not? This, that was an ancient way of thinking, why does any blood have to be shed in the first place if God is a God of love? I mean, we're a much more modern, uh, you know, view of God. God is a loving God. God isn't an angry and evil God, right? He's not going to be just torturing people, right? And I want to suggest to you that if you're thinking that way, you don't have a God that's as loving as the God in the Bible, this God. Because the God that you're talking about, a God who just lets everything go, one, he can't really protect you then in the face of evil or injustice. He can't even comfort you. He can't ever give you hope in the face of evil and injustice. Evil actually then wins because he just loves everyone. It doesn't matter if you're the Pope or Hitler. You see, there I said it. You know, you said Hitler. Now nah, that means all bets are off. We've got to figure this out. And that kind of God cannot be empathic. Think about it. That kind of God will not be empathic. He cannot be compassionate. He can't even be just. He definitely can't be faithful. He certainly is not powerful when you experience injustice. He's not as loving. But the Christian God says, what? I have been deeply betrayed by my people, the people who are the apple of my eye. I have been deeply hurt and betrayed by the people that I love the most. Anyone who has ever been betrayed would understand that feeling. When you've been betrayed by someone you deeply love, there is this sin debt that that person has accrued. They owe you in a sense. You feel like they owe you. They may not believe it. They may not acknowledge it. And it just hurts you that they don't even acknowledge it, right? That's how it is. Can you just let that person go because you're a loving person? In fact, it's because you're a loving person, you can't let that person go. Because you love that person, you can't let that person go. You've been deeply hurt by that person. No. Actually, what happens is, the longer the brokenness resides, there's, you want blood. Somebody has to pay. Somebody has to suffer the tears that you cried. Somebody has to endure the sleeplessness that you've had. Somebody has to absorb the darkness that you've experienced. Somebody has to shed blood. There's got to be agony. And God says, I am just. Somebody must pay, and they will pay for this betrayal. But at the same time, it will not stop my love. It will not stop my faithfulness. So what does he do? Think about it. If he was just just, we'd all be dead. If he was just loving then none of us will die, even Hitler. All right, that's it, right? We really have to figure this out now. What does he do? He says, I will pay. My blood will be spilt. I will die. Our God hurts. 
Our God suffers. Our God empathizes with loss and suffering. Our God empathizes with those who've been betrayed, with those who understand the great pain and the great cost of forgiving somebody. It's like you're dying. You're absorbing that pain all into yourself. And, and, so, and why do we know that? Because he died in order to forgive those who betrayed him. On the cross, what do you see? Jesus' tears. Jesus' sleeplessness. Jesus' darkness. There was darkness everywhere. Jesus, there was literally agony and suffering and blood. And it was spilled for those who placed their trust in him for salvation. And if they do, God's spirit resides in them. How does a cross, how does a cross shape you to become that radical new society? Think about it. Why are we so attracted? I'm going multiple layers here. Stay with me. Why are we so attracted to beautiful people again? to talented people, to people who are wealthy, to people who have great reputations. Why are we so attracted to them? Because deep inside we know that there was a time we, we, we were so intimate, deeply intimate with God that there was no emptiness in our lives. We didn't have any needs, no internal needs. There was no sin. In our relationship with the Father, we had power, we had wealth, we had intimacy, we had everything in the Garden of Eden, but we chose to reject God, and, and as a result, we were driven out of the Garden. And ever since then, we've lost that ultimate power, we've lost intimacy, we've, all, we've lost uh, our wealth. And so we're just, because of our sin, and, and so we've been looking to fill that emptiness in our sinfulness, in sinful ways, apart from God, we've been looking to fill that emptiness, and it doesn't get, it doesn't get full. But if you knew that in Christ you had ultimate power and ultimate wealth and ultimate beauty and ultimate approval, you will be free from those lesser beauties. I'm not saying that those things are not attractive. And I'm not saying that those things are not even good. Some of them are very good, but they are lesser good. And they can be, if they become an ultimate good, it becomes evil for you. It always drives us towards evil. And so you will be free from these lesser beauties and you won't add that, that can force you to become a slave to work to earn these things, work to earn wealth and these relationships. And as a result, your love for others then can become genuine because you're not loving to get something back all the time. How much does Jesus love you? Verse 15, he says, I eagerly desire to eat this Passover meal with you. Meals represent intimacy, and Jesus Christ, before he dies, what's one of the last things he does before he dies? He says, my friends, I want to eat with you. That's how much, I, you have no idea how much I love you. You have no idea how much I, I want to be with you. I'm going to die for you. If you get God's love for you, it will shape you. It will change you. A lot of people hanging around the church staring at this great feast that's offered by Jesus, that invitation of Jesus, and yet you're still not willing to, uh, you're, not, you're still not let, willing to let go of some stuff in your life and just dig into the meal. Until you take that bite, until you take it in, until you take him in, none, I mean, think about it, when you eat a meal, what's the power of the meal? It's not, you just look at well, that great meal, that's not how it works, right? You gotta take that meal and you gotta take a bite. That's how it powers you. Chemical reactions take place and it transforms you. Garbage in, garbage out. But if it's good going in, right, it turns to power. It will nourish you, it will shape you. By the way, that's why we observe the Lord's Supper. I can't wait till we do that in person again. That's why we observe the Lord's Supper. 
Very simple meal, no lamb, because Jesus is the lamb. And we're told to do it regularly. You know why? You know why we're told to do it regularly? Because no one says, well, you know, I had this great meal in 2004, and it's so good, I don't eat no more. No one ever does that, right? No one does that. It was so good, I don't need to eat again. No, we don't do that. We have a lot of malnourished people in the church. A lot of malnourished people in the church. Salvation is an event, but it's also a process. You have to renew that commitment, right? You may have God's love, but you gotta, you gotta continue to nourish it, grow it, renew that commitment over and over and over again. Jesus says, do it in remembrance of me. Remember Jesus on the cross. Every time you take that meal, every time you open that Bible, every time you pray, every time you get down, you say, Lord, I'm coming to you because I'm a broken person. I'm a sinful person. I've been in a funk for a long time, and I know you, and yet I'm just feeling so crappy today. This is an opportunity. Every day, every moment is an opportunity, an invitation for us to take Jesus in. Remember Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost the Father so you can have the Father. I've spilt my blood so you could be covered in that blood and, and forgiven and righteous. That's, that's how I see you, forgiven and righteous. I have been forgotten and forsaken so that you will always be remembered. You will never be forgotten. You will never be forsaken. Look at the beauty of the broken body and the blood spilt. Look at the beauty of Jesus. Take him in. When you suffer, that gospel will shape you. When you fail, that gospel will shape you. When you sin, that gospel will shape you. The cross shows you that God has done something through all those things to make you wonderful and beautiful in that new community of yours. It's his community. Will you make Jesus Christ the centerpiece of this incredible feast that we get to share in regularly as Christians. Will you take him in today? Let's pray together.